Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. I'm Brett McCarty. I'm a postdoc at the Divinity School. Um, and it's a great joy today to introduce and interview and talk with uh, Dr. Elaine Howard Eklund, who is the Herbert S. Altry Chair in Social Sciences, a professor of sociology, and director of the Religion and Public Life Program at Rice University in Houston, where everything's bigger. And uh, she's also a Rice Scholar at the Baker Institute for Public Policy. Dr. Eklund is the author of three books with Oxford University Press, one book with New York University Press, and numerous research articles and op-eds. Op She's a world-renowned scholar on what scientists think of religion and what religious people think of science. And she's also conducted research on medicine, religion, and spirituality. So earlier this year, she delivered the prestigious Gifford Lectures at the University of Edinburgh. And in case you missed it, just last night, she delivered a fascinating lecture entitled, What University Scientists Really Think About Religion. Today, we're delighted to have her join us for a conversation about science and religion as they intersect with the human body and medicine. Mm -hmm. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Eklund. Thank you. Thanks a, for having me. Yeah, Thank you. It's Thank such you. a joy to have yeah, you here. It's great Thank to you. be here. Um, so I wonder, just to get things started, for those who weren't able to make your talk last night, if you could start by just giving a brief overview of some of your work on what university scientists think about religion, particularly in the American context, because I know you did some global work on that. Yeah, study. so over the past uh, 10 years, our research team through the Religion and Public Life Program at Rice University has attended to what scientists think about religion. And to that end, we've um, surveyed about 25,000 scientists, um, in particular in the fields of physics, all fields of physics, and all fields of biology, often including medicine. Um, and then we followed that up with the much more fun part from my perspective, which is actually um, flying to people's offices and uh, dialing them up on Skype and doing face-to-face -face interviews about why they gave the survey responses yeah, that they right, did right. Um, and sort of asking them those things. And I think that there's maybe three kinds of things mm -hmm. that I want to mention that kind of have surprised me about this research. Maybe that's a place to start and then we can figure right. out where to go from there. Um, there is a lot of uh, narration in the broader public, particularly in the media and particularly in university contexts, about scientists um, being atheists and being a particular kind of atheist. So not just, you know, unbelievers or non-believers, but sort of particularly virulent atheists, right, who are kind of um, apostles of atheism or something, um, to use sort of laden uh, religious language. And I think that I kind of set out to see if that's the case. Mm -hmm. You know, that's sort of one kind of thing. And we found that there are more religious scientists than you might think. So in the U.S., a little over 50% of scientists in these fields um, think of themselves as religious. And when you get to the fields of medicine, um, even more. There are more religious people in medicine than in other um, fields of science. And that's something we can talk about why that might be the case. And then... Um, but there are different kinds of religiosity than in the general population, and that's kind of fun to talk about, too. And then perhaps um, the, one of the more surprising things to me as a researcher is that atheist scientists are different than I might have thought. You always ask yourself, uh, where were you surprised? 
And I would say that when I started this research, I thought, oh gosh, there's so many different ways of being a religious person in science, like as a good sociologist of religion, you know, they're just, the religion is so diverse. But I would have not said atheism is particularly diverse. I thought it was just uh, by definition, you don't believe in God. Like, what is that, you know? Um, and I've been really shocked. Um, there are atheists who think of themselves as religiously involved. Um, there are atheists who think of themselves as spiritual um, and kind of set a distinction between themselves as spiritual atheists and colleague scientists who are not spiritual atheists in terms of how they think about helping students and um, people they mentor and sort of their civic responsibilities to the broader world with their scientific work. Um, and in general, I can count on one hand the number of atheist scientists that I have personally talked with and through my studies I personally interviewed about a thousand scientists um, who are you know as negative about religion as someone like uh, Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris and and I think that's interesting for the public to know I yeah. think that will break down some barriers if we can publicize that a bit more broadly it's a kind of public science move I'm hoping that it breaks down some barriers of between yeah. scientists and the general yeah. and the general public. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you had um, some really interesting quotes from like someone who was a professed atheist who attended religious services, mm -hmm. and like, I mean, like that dynamic is so interesting to me, and not in any of the boxes that I assume. Not I in like. my boxes yeah. either. Yeah, yeah, yeah not yeah. in my boxes either. Yeah, so. Um, Breaking down boundaries you just mentioned, I mean, I was particularly intrigued by your discussion of the importance of what you actually drawing from the language of one of your interviewees called boundary pioneers mm -hmm. um, for how people perceive the relationship between religion and science. And you also talk about this a good bit in your Gifford lectures. Uh, could you say just a bit more about these figures and their importance for the relationship between science and religion? Yeah, I, I really love um, working with um, scientists of all sorts because they tend to be somewhat reflective people. These are people who are pretty high education, right, um, by definition. Um, they um, also are a somewhat empowered group um, compared to other types of populations that I've studied. So um, in the general public, uh, like my respondents, uh, you know, generally, and I think this is not necessarily a good thing, the power balance is unequal, such that I have more power than the respondent, generally speaking. And they kind of take for granted what I say is being true, is the big researcher. Yeah. Um, scientists do not feel that way. Um, they, uh, you know, feel totally free to contradict me as the researcher or add new categories yeah. or say, like, yeah. I don't agree with this question. I want another question. Like, yeah. none of my other survey or interview responses ever be like, I don't like these questions. Yeah. Like, and so, but what's kind of fun about that is scientists, I think, sometimes bring up great research ideas. And case in point, um, one of my scientists said, like, what we really need in this whole religion and science conversation is a, some boundary pioneers. And I'm like, what does that mean? I mean, that's so interesting. Um, where are the boundaries, you know, and how do we pioneer them? And, uh, and, and I kind of asked him, like, what he meant by that. And he said, well, um, one of the examples, I think, of which I mentioned last night is um, Francis Collins, you know, who's, um, you know, teams with your fields in medicine, right, in um, the biological sciences, and is the current director of the National Institutes of Health and the former, former director of the Human Genome Project. And he said, Francis is such, I know him personally, he's such an interesting fellow. He is obviously religious. And it was funny because this person 
was not religious and said, I am not religious in this way. And he used this very particular phrase. He said, he is a born again Christian. And I was like, okay, yes. Okay. I know what you mean. And, um, he said, but it's, it's really, he said, generally speaking, I'm not a fan of those people, but, um, that, Francis is kind of really breaking down my categories for this whole group of people because um, his scientific work is so good. And I am really on board with his scientific work, but yet he's able for his own life to kind of merge these two areas of his life in an integrated way. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of want to know more about how he's doing that. For me, he's a kind of boundary pioneer in helping me break down some boundaries I had with a group of people. And I thought, that's really fascinating. And so what our team did is we looked at the um, interview transcripts when you do these interviews. Um, we do this with the computer software, but you know it's like you're laying all the transcripts of conversations on a table and you're kind of searching them for certain things. And we started searching them for proper names. Like, you know, who are the famous people who are mentioned in these interviews? Like, who are scientists? Who are they talked about? Dawkins and Collins came up a ton, you know, in you, among U.S. scientists, um, biologists, and physicists. And um, Dawkins, they didn't describe in particularly positive terms. They did think he was very influential. Some of them, as I, I think as well, thought Richard Dawkins has done a fantastic job um, in terms of increasing the public understanding of science in some of his earlier work, and I really admire that work as well. But they really, even the atheist scientists, did not like how um, Dawkins is kind of set up a virulent relationship between religious people and themselves. And I thought that was interesting. And we found this both among UK scientists and US scientists, and I've written some research about this. Um, But Francis Collins was mentioned very positively. And that, the sort of when people mentioned him, they mentioned him positively. They may have thought his particular religious beliefs were a little wonky, but um, in terms of his own personal um, demeanor and relationship to others and how he did his scientific work and even in particular his ability to integrate these two spheres of life that sometimes people think of as not able to be integrated they really admired that and so we started looking for that you yeah. know in these yeah, yeah. data to see if this was something that was more widespread and, and yeah. we found that it was yeah. oh, neat. So, oh, I want to turn back to the uh, conversation about many pioneers in a moment but first I want to turn some to medicine because it's here that certain scientific and religious assumptions play out in how we care for our bodies and the bodies of others. And so you've done some work along with Wendy Cadge and others on medicine, religion, and spirituality among pediatricians and pediatric oncologists, some interviewed here at Duke, um, among other institutions. And so uh, at times for them, religion is perceived, you you both claim, as a barrier and other times as a bridge. And I wonder if you could say more about that for for the folks you interviewed. Yeah. So um, Wendy Cadge, who's written a really lovely book called Paging God, which I I really recommend to you about the chaplaincy. Um, And we looked um, in particular, and this was in another study of scientists, we um, took in people into our sample at the top medical schools um, who are professors of medicine, um, not unlike places like this. I'm not able to say whether it was this place or not. Your, <laughs> so, your um, article says that it was this place. I will say that, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, among many others, yes, so, yes, to protect right. the innocent. Um, but it um, was really fascinating. This was Wendy's idea, so I want to give her credit for that. She said, well, let's look at, let's compare professors of, of pediatrics generally to professors of pediatric oncology. So she said, like, let's compare how people think about um, you know, largely well children mm-hmm. and what that means and how spirituality and religion might enter or not enter um, to very sick children, yeah. And 
she, um, we developed this interesting interview guide and survey guide, and we did find um, that you know people quickly go to um, religion as a kind of barrier to good care. So the cases, you know, everyone can give the won't receive a blood transfusion yeah. case, like as if this is just. Um, I have another example of this, but this this is just uh, incredibly widespread. You know, I mean, it's like like it happens. It's sort of the way people talk about it as an example is that it must happen like every day. This must happen. You know, um, and that's probably not the case. But just sort of they can think of the extreme barrier mm -hmm. examples, mm -hmm. um, and then a bridge being. Um, under the conditions where medicine is kind of ended, and I think Wendy talks about this yeah. this uh, in her book as well nicely, sort of when do you call in the chaplains mm -hmm. when there's mm -hmm. nothing else to be done. Right. right. Um, and I and I, I thought that it was kind of interesting, mm -hmm. and she's then picked that up in mm -hmm. later work. Yeah. And maybe for conversation yeah. for this um, yeah. <clears throat> kind of group, um, I also we're always as social we're people working as sociologists rather we're people who are working in the actual, um, you know, we are in the social systems we're studying. Right, so it's right, a different right. kind of work than my husband's a particle physicist. Right. And I would think he maybe, you know, had some mental struggles if he started saying to me, like, my respondents talk to me, right? My particles talk to me. <laughs> These neutrons. And, you know, there's sort of, so it's sort of, there's, um, not to make fun of that, but that is, you know, it's a very different kind of work when you're in natural science, right? And I think of medicine and I should probably ask you if this is true from your own experiences, is this interesting kind of um, humanities-informed yeah, science yeah. In, a, in a very deep sense, and that you're doing science among bodies, and you are also a body, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, you know, my doctor has recently become very ill, and, you know, what does that mean for him? You mm. know, And so, um, in that kind of context, and, you know, I sort of, thinking about that too in terms mm -hmm. of these bridges and I have an example where I thought uh, a doctor used in my own life used spirituality in a really positive way that wasn't a sort of end of the road way. Mm -hmm. I have rheumatoid, mm -hmm. I was telling right earlier that I have rheumatoid arthritis. I was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis when I was 10 so I've had arthritis really my whole life. I'm 45 now and <laughs> When I was um, 36, I found myself in the position where I couldn't walk anymore, and I very badly needed a hip replacement. And I was really emotionally resistant to that. I'm like, what 36-year-old has a hip replacement? That is ridiculous. I've got a two-year-old child. I can't have a hip replacement. And um, now I, I don't want to diss a certain field of medicine, so I need to be very careful here. <laughs> but Just I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't yeah. say that orthopedic surgeons are like deeply known for their bedside manner and just their, <laughs> and is this true or not true? I don't know. I mean, is this like, maybe this is a stereotype I have. Um, my brother-in-law is an orthopedic surgeon. Actually, he's one of the most lovely human beings you would ever meet. But, um, so that's not true in his case. But um, I remember my, so we, this is not an end of the line kind of situation. I wasn't gonna die. Um, but my, my uh, orthopedic surgeon said to me, and he clearly wanted to convince me to have a hip replacement. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, I thought this was really, he said, may I hold your hand? And he said, um, what is your calling? And I thought, wow, okay, whoa. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, I am you know, a professor and I write books and I'm a mother. And he said, well, my calling is to do hip replacements. And he said, I am very good at my work. <laughs> And he said, um, how about if you let me do my work so you can do your work? 
And I thought that was yeah. a really spiritual moment. It sort yeah. of brings tears to my yeah, eyes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He convinced me. Yeah. And I had that hip replacement. I had another hip replacement with him two years later. <laughs> <laughs> Return customer, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But that, I thought that particular um, language of calling yeah. was really yeah. powerful. Yeah. And I didn't, yeah. I was so overwhelmed that I didn't think to follow up with my sociology of religion hat and say, where are you coming from with your faith perspective? <laughs> but, but I kind of felt like it was a very particular Christian yeah. language yeah. that yeah. Um, really yeah. resonated with me. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I really credit him with that decision. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think I was ready to kind of put up with the pain and, and keep going. It just yeah. didn't seem like, I couldn't imagine this happening to me in such a youngish body. Yeah. Um, so that yeah. was really helpful. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and that actually, you, you set up my next question perfectly. So uh, as, as we were talking earlier in the Theology, Medicine, Culture Initiative, we have this fellowship program for those who self-identify as having Christian vocations or callings uh, to healthcare broadly conceived, uh, and they come here for at least a year of study and formation at the Divinity School. So I like to think of them, and several of them are in the room, as our own boundary pioneers. Um, <laughs> uh, so last night, I sat by one of our former fellows, Brewer Eberly, and I asked him uh, afterwards, at, after your lecture, uh, what, what I should ask you today. And so here's what he suggested. It's easier for me, this is Brewer, to imagine praying with my doctor than praying with my physicist or my biologist. Mm. It seems like there have to be scientific disciplines that warrant more religious cross-pollination, um, maybe in the, in the practice of it. So yeah, yeah. Did, did you sense that um, in your interviews and your time with, with these folks? Mm. Yes, I did. So I do think that um, people in medicine can't escape the whole person, right? I think whole persons are always there everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Like so. Biologists are experiencing people if they're doing lab biology only. Um, uh, also, you know, and they work with people and uh, their, their research has implications for the human person in lots of ways, and, and physicists as well. Um, but when you start dealing directly with suffering, uh, it's a new kind of thing, right? Um, and that and so, but I want to say something else, though. So I think mm -hmm. that's true, and that came out a lot in our interviews, the inter for especially for the study that I did with Wendy, and especially for people who deal with suffering on a day-to-day -day basis, mm -hmm. deep suffering. Um, but it also, we have to think about the kinds of structures of medicine and the ways in which um, it makes it really hard for physicians and professors of medicine and other medical professionals to embody and, ex and really practice these kinds of things. Um, so, and there's just so much. You can talk to me more about that um, than I can talk to you, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, in our interviews um, with people in medicine, you know, they mention things like intense bureaucracy, um, the pace of the work, um, the tiredness of their own bodies uh, because of the work hours. Um, the sort of extensive, um, constant decision-making, and not just any decision-making, but decisions that feel like they have a lot of consequence, mm -hmm. and sort of how the sort of general <laughs> fatigue of that. Mm -hmm. And that makes it, I think, a special kind of challenge to then think about how you would um, use spiritual practice of various sorts to then form medicine. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it's a very special kind of structure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
this is where I love sociology, yeah. is that these kind of faith and science conversations are often left in the world of abstract ideas, mm -hmm. but um, they are an embodied reality, right? right? right. We live faith and science. Right. Um, we are people who are in faith communities mm -hmm. and um, scientists who are in science communities, and some people mm -hmm. overlap those communities. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sort of how you would set up <laughs> spiritual practice in yeah. this very particular kind of institution, yeah. I think, is an open question. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, maybe briefly, you, you mentioned some last night uh, about some of the like different institutional contexts that might enable boundary pioneers to do their work within religious communities or within science and I've, and this and you kind of acknowledge that you were stepping beyond maybe your kind of quantitative and qualitative work but just wondering about the structures of, mm -hmm. of it all and I'm, I, I wonder if you'd wonder a bit with us like what are some of the more productive institutional contextual spaces for that type of boundary work to happen oh, that's a great question um, well I'm not I want to compliment you here because this is probably one of those spaces, right? And I, I'm not being paid to say this. <laughs> you know, I mean it genuinely. There are not, um, you know, there are not a lot of spaces like this where you can have um, open conversations, you know. Um, and so creating intentional academic spaces and places where these kind of crossover conversations can occur, I think is in and of itself a kind of spiritual practice. You know, it's a kind of... Um, integrated practice mm -hmm. where you're integrating not only um, knowledge frameworks but also people groups right in a really important way um, I think that um, certain kinds of faith communities um, are places where these conversations can happen this has been tricky for me because there's a premium placed on objectivity in the social sciences and a particular kind of objectivity. Like, we understand that we're less prestigious in the academic hierarchy than natural scientists, and we want to be them. So, <laughs> and so it's funny, my husband's a particle physicist, and the, he's like, wow, you guys are more into science than the scientists are. Like, it's just sort of, and I'm like, we know where the money is. You know, it's sort of, so it's like a particular kind of hierarchy, and objectivity is part of that as well. And so, I, Speaking from the humanities, <laughs> at least there's money. Yeah, like, exactly. you, like. <laughs> so even though, and I really reject this, this particular yeah. form of objectivity, I think there is research that's better or worse mm -hmm. methodologically, mm -hmm. yep. and I do want to do rigorous social scientific work. But as I said previously, we can't get away from the idea that we're also people studying other people, yeah, like our yeah. views and our backgrounds inform yeah. us. And I think it's silly to pretend that they don't. Yeah. And they also uh, leave us with certain kinds of moral commitments, um, hope, sometimes helpful ones yeah. about what we should do with our work. And so for, my, for me, that has meant that I know all this stuff from my research about scientists' attitudes towards religion and by extension, medicine and religion and other kinds of things that I started to think if I spoke more widely in churches, my own faith background is as a Christian, um, that that might be a helpful thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so not objective. Like it's so interpretive. It's so yeah. normative. It's so, I mean, I sort of, I had all these voices yeah. in my head about yeah. how this is bad and it's not good academic practice. And I just couldn't let it go. Uh, you know, I just, I thought, you know, just as if, um, 
someone has a particular identity and they could really do good translation work into that community because they have better relationships with people in that receiving community than some other person. Yeah. I think as good academics that maybe there should be a little bit of moral push yeah. to translate to that community. And so I started to feel a big moral push, like it would be kind of wrong-headed of me not to do some translation work in very particular kinds of church communities which tend to struggle with these issues. Mm -hmm. And so um, with some scientists in my con my personal congregation, um, we like started a discussion group yeah. and yeah. have started a lecture series yeah. and kind of are doing very intentional yeah. work. Yeah. And um, the work that I do through that is on the web. It's publicly yeah. available. It's felt very risky to do it. Yeah. Um, but I just have felt a real moral push to uh -huh. do that. and to share that work in that way. And so I think for some um, congregations um, and other religious organizations, um, dependent on context, can be very good sites of these conversations. I will say that sometimes scientists, and I even think um, the physicians that, that I've talked to, um, I am in Houston at Rice University, um, a huge number of medical centers and institutions of, of higher education related to medicine a lot of people related to medical fields in my congregations and congregation and I think scientists and um, and medical people sometimes feel insecure in congregations and not over not wanting to overwhelm people with their work and the kind of struggles of their day-to-day -day work and wanting to be uh, I talked about this a little bit in my talk last night practicing almost a kind of secret science mm -hmm. where they do not talk openly about their work in their congregations. And I'd like to urge those of us in those fields to, to maybe move a little bit beyond that. I think there's some danger there in um, then communicating that there's no one in the congregation who's a scientist or in that these things kind of can't be held together. And those people in congregations are probably the best interlocutors, right? Those are the people who are really inhabiting both worlds are probably the very best people um, to have these conversations. And we also want them to be supported, right? So to church leaders, I would say, um, it's my, out of my own, own um, kind of context, that um, they need to be taught and helped in how to make um, congregations more hospitable um, to people who are in science and medicine. I think that's really important. Um, and <laughs> it's funny because... Uh, you know, in our past churches, people have always wanted my husband to like run the finances because, like, you know, or something like that because he's really good with numbers, you know. And I'm like, yes, you could use him that way. I mean, that could be one kind of practice, right. but um, you could also have him talk about his science, right? You right. know, and that might be helpful right. to people too. Right. So that's sort of yeah. how do we think about that um, yeah. in the context of congregations? And then the harder place, I think, mm. is um, in actual academic contexts and. Um, in schools of medicine and in the mm -hmm. institutions of the science, right? And how do we create an institutional space where crossover conversations and um, crossover forms of embodiment, right, mm -hmm. where communities connect? Um, how do we create those spaces yeah. in those institutions yeah. of higher education, yeah. I think, is a taller order, yeah. um, but also equally, if not more so, needed. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just add is... Um, as a Christian ethicist thinking about like scientists and medical practitioners being within re religious communities, that it's not simply um, uh, ways in which they show a kind of comportment between their practice and their faith tenets, but it's also the very real challenges they face, like the day-to-day -day frustrations they face in their work. Like 
they, they shouldn't feel alone in that. Like that, that's a segmented part of themselves that they can't bring and have fully present in their church or their religious community. Mm-hmm. And there's a way in which talking about it there opens that up to connections with others that, that enables you not to just walk alone with this like segmented part of yourself that's not shared among your community. Um, so, uh, so thanks for doing well that. Put, well yeah. put. Yeah, yeah. yeah well put. Um, uh, maybe I'll ask just one or two more questions before we open it up to the room. Um, the uh, um, I wonder uh, if the we've, we've touched on this a bit already, but you noted that there are um, particular kinds of scientists that might be drawn to more constructive relationship, a uh, 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 self-avowed more constructive relationship between religion and science. And might that also be true for medicine and religion? Mm-hmm. So um, in my own experience, I've found more conversation partners, and this is just local to me here at Duke, among like palliative care, pediatrics, and psychiatric healthcare practitioners, to name literally some of the physicians in the room. Um, like uh, <laughs> that, uh, I mean, but, but, but I mean, but, but, but not just them. Like when I go to like the conference on medicine and religion, um, there aren't as many. Well, I'm not going to name. There, there are vast swaths of medicine that I, I feel find like I've started some kind of trend of putting down subfields or specialties no, 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 that no. I don't I, want to do. It's not, it's not putting down, but like yeah, I wonder if we yeah. can think about what intrinsically yeah. within the practice of certain subspecialties might uh, make them more tuned to some potentially more tuned to some of these conversations. Yeah, no, that is right, and. Uh, you probably, because of your own work, have more wisdom about this than I do, so I just want to ask you what you think, because uh, you're so reflective. Um, so I do think that, for my own research and the research of others in this room, and um, that fields of medicine that uh, more closely deal with death and suffering and where the journey with the person is more present. So you do... I do think about something like, um, I've talked to my, my brother-in-law a lot, who's, um, we share the same faith perspective sort of about orthopedics, and he's been very helpful to me. Um, and it just sort of, you know, t- figuring out how to get good orthopedic care and yep. things like yep. that, he's been really deeply helpful. But you do think about specialties like that where um, there's not so much uh, face time with the patient potentially, mm-hmm. where they could, um, there could there's be a kind time, of, not, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Money. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I mean, they they could um, almost see themselves as a kind of technician, right? Um, and there is maybe more of a and boy, gosh, I expect pushback from you. What I'm what I'm saying may not be true. Um, there is then maybe more of a temptation to deeply compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. Does that does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, in some kinds of specialties, and I think about. Um, mental health and illness and um, oncology and, you know, kinds of um, specialties where there's more of an ongoing journey with the person and maybe even um, chronic illnesses, right? Care for people who have chronic illnesses. I think that might be one where you you have like literally probably more face time, um, but also a kind of experiencing a journey with a person over their life course and what does that mean and, and these kinds of things or a very intense period in the life course and maybe closer to um, deep suffering in a day-to-day. Um, yeah. Those are some thoughts. No, and I wonder if those kinds of specialties then would elicit more. Yeah. You sort of can't get away from it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Both in terms of your patients, 
um, those you care for, uh, their own resources, yep. right, and their yep. own mention of spirituality and religion, but also your own mm-hmm. care, right? So it's sort of how do you deal with these kinds of things yeah. in your own yeah. life and also the kinds of resources that people have outside of, of course, biological resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so last question before opening it up. I wonder if you think back to some of the conversations you've had with folks within medicine, uh, both kind of structured interviews and also any of your own experiences, um, how, how does the body show up in their, in their own imagination about the relationship between religion and medicine or science? Um, how, uh, is it, how are they thinking about caring for the body or uh, understanding the body? Uh, in relation to their own kind of religion and spirituality. Hmm. Yeah, you're making me think I should do a much more self-conscious study around the body, but that's one kind of comment I have. Um, I'm like, wow, I should totally do that. Um, interestingly, our, our church right now in this faith and science uh, group, I was talking to Warren about this and to Brett some is doing a series on the human body and faith. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm needing to deal with um, these things a lot more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. Um, in my own research on science and religion, I've done some research on fertility mm-hmm. and um, in particular how religious people um, respond and different groups of religious people respond mm-hmm. to a variety of human reproductive genetic technologies in general, but mm-hmm. fertility technologies in, in particular. And I would love to um, do a study among medical people mm-hmm. who are mm-hmm. uh, it, for whom this is a specialty. I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's also an industry. It's yeah. also you know there's sort of there's all kinds yeah. of things yeah. going on there and which are really interesting. But I'm actually kind of surprised that people haven't studied this mm-hmm. more in relationship um, to religion yeah. and to faith and spirituality yeah. because it's a very embodied experience yeah. for people, yeah. and it also. Um, the idea of family and yeah. what an ideal family means and what yeah. it looks like yeah, is yeah. very much a religious concept yeah. for people, yeah. right? Yeah. It's yeah. a very spiritual kind of ideal. Um, and there's a lot of ideals floating around, in particular in churches, about what that means, mm-hmm. right? And um, and I think I think that's all yeah. really interesting. Yeah. And so I would say that's one area yeah. where the body has come up a mm-hmm. lot. Yeah. Um, I would say another area in my research where the body has come up a lot is um, is studying, so this, this is kind of funny to think about it this way, but in my studies I've attended to uh, studying scientists across their life course. So I've always wanted to include in studies, studies of students, people in training, but also studies of people who are mid-career and studies of people who are senior um, career. And the way in which um, being a scientist, and I wonder if this is true for people in medicine as well, in aligned field, is a very embodied experience, that people have an identity as a scientist that's very thorough, and that as aging happens, that really feels attacked. Mm -hmm. And aging, as we all know, is a very embodied experience. Our bodies are limited, um, and they do grow older. And the ways in which um, senior scientists, this just kind of come up, it's like, I didn't even set out to study mm-hmm. this, but sort of how um, senior scientists deal with aging mm-hmm. in different kinds of societies has yeah. been sort of interesting to me as like a little side thing. I've often thought about mm-hmm. um, writing about science across the life course because science is also, and Boyce Your Medicine is, is very physical work, yeah. you know, and... Um, 
you have to be able to do stuff with your body to keep that going. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Um, so when the body fails, what do we do with that? Yeah. You know, when you're the and so to how we think about that. I think that's kind of interesting, yeah. interesting kind of side thing. Another thing I've been thinking about um, in kind of <laughs> my own uh, personal life, and then I think, gosh, sometimes I experience things, and I think, wouldn't this be a great research topic, is how um, body image and understandings of health and are formed in community, that we usually think of the journey of the body as a very individualized journey. But I think, you know, I'm sure those of you who have thought about things like body image, um, that's very socially constructed and maybe is a good thing for a sociologist to attend to. I had a really funny experience with my daughter. Maybe this seems the right occasion to tell this. Um, she was like seven. <laughs> she says, um, she comes home from school and she says, uh, I really hate to tell you this, but I had a really difficult experience at school today. <laughs> she's very funny. She's an only child. And I don't know if that conditions this somehow, but uh, she's, uh, she says, uh, you know, unfortunately, people make fun of both you and dad. <laughs> and, I, and, I'm like, and I'm like, okay, well, where is this going? <laughs> she says, um, <laughs> she says, daddy, they say, he has gray hair. Is he your grandfather? She said, several children have asked me this. <laughs> and she says, you, she says, oh, sorry, this kind of makes me emotional. She says, you have bent hands. And um, she says a couple of kids have said, what's wrong with your mom? Because you she has bent hands. And she said, well, I told them she has this disease and stuff. And she says, you see what I'm dealing with? My husband has come to terms with, he, he's not that young anymore, but he actually went great quite early in his 30s. And he uh, has kind of come to terms with us, and he was like, whatever, you know, I don't care what seven-year-olds think of me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a particle physicist. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I have to tell you that it really hurt my feelings, and it brought home the whole social construction of the human body to me, and I got little tears in my eyes, you know, it really hurt my feelings. And I, you know, I've really come to terms with the fact that I have a chronic illness. It's been... A, a horrific difficulty and an amazing blessing. Mm. I've really come to terms mm. with it. But that, I realized I wasn't quite to terms with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that, you know, what a bunch of seven-year-olds thought about the health of my daughter, you know, of, of her mother kind of affected me emotionally and it kind of hurt my feelings. Yeah. And I was like, wow, how I feel about my body is really socially constructed. <laughs> like, that one little thing to the side yeah. kind of, yeah. like, broke me yeah. a little bit. And it was it was funny. It was also an interesting story of, mm. of reconciliation because I got got all into my head that night and I and I there's amazing hand surgeons in Houston mm. and I thought you know when am I going to just pull a plug and I do I can't play the piano anymore because of the way my hands are kind of deformed and I really have loved the piano and I was like I'm so I've met so many great hand surgeons I thought just have hand surgery but it's a major commitment and I was like god damn it I'm gonna have hand surgery like this is just it you know I'm gonna get this I'm gonna really take the time off from work I'm gonna do it and I was telling my daughter this when I put her to bed and um and she says, Mom, I'm really sorry about what I said. She said, I could tell that really hurt your feelings. <laughs> and, um, and she said, she took my hand again, a lot of hand stories here, and, and she said, I wouldn't want you to change your hands, she said, because they're the hands of my mom. That really, it really broke my heart. Yeah, it really. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. 
and um, and I thought like just all the community in that yeah. story yeah, and yeah. like how and, like my whole image body image was like foom, foom, foom. You know? it was like <laughs> in about two hours. Yeah. Right? You know? and I just thought like how weak we are. You know that was one thought I had and just how you know important the community is. So. Yeah. Oh, that's. That's really lovely. Um, I have an, another question about gender and ethics, uh, but I'll, I'll save that a little bit down the line because yeah. um, we've got um, about 27 minutes uh, and we have, I'd love to open it up for conversation. I'll kind of keep a cue over here and, uh, and we'd love to talk with Dr. directly. Yeah. Jeff. Thank you. Um, right before I got paged out which is the story of my life. Um, <laughs> you were making a comment about the kind of religiosity or faith of, that a scientist versus a practitioner. So one, I'd like you to talk about the theme of, about wonder as a virtue. Oh, that's a great So the particle thing. physicist, I think of that as a central virtue of being, mm. the, the, that, of being a scientist. But I think it can be a virtue of medicine, too. Um, I'm thinking of a child I just saw with autism the other day, he walks right up to me while I'm in trees and ready, and he's staring straight at my chest instead of looking at me, and instead of saying, how are you doing, he says, your badge is expired. Oh, yes, it has. And um, in particular, how the um, atheist, so I, I guess I've been taught this by atheist scientists, interestingly. Um, and certainly scientists who are Christians and scientists who are Muslims have talked about this as well. But I guess what's been surprising to me as a researcher is how much some atheist scientists, because for me that sense of, of beauty and awe and wonder is very much a, a theological concept as well. And so I think about um, the atheist scientists I've talked with who cannot seem to escape the beauty, wonder, and awe in their scientific work. And I think both um, in the most abstract, um, basic science that, that you can do. If you have ever go over to the CERN experiment um, and just visit, it's a really fun place to be. I spent quite a bit of time there with my husband. Um, there's a lot of discussion of beauty <laughs> and awe and the kinds of signs that they put around and the kinds of things. Now, And this is very much a part of um, they have wonderful media people there and they're very much trying to convince the public, of course, of the um, worthiness of a scientific experiment that costs this much money and takes the person power of this many nations and people. But I think it's also true. I don't think it's just utilitarian. I do think that they are experiencing you know, a sense of beauty and awe in their work. Um, what about doctors? We get so focused on pathology. That's right. <laughs> well, just as I've kind of um, picked on the field of orthopedics, I, I do think I've, I've had some great conversations in my personal life with um, orthopedic surgeons that see the kind of work that they do as being really deeply beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, both uh, repair um, as well as just the intricacy and the beauty of the human body um, when you're working with joints. And, and so just to sort of think about that, I, I've had those kind of conversations in my personal life. Um, and I, I was just thinking about, I was just speaking to a church group, it seems, when someone mentioned this. And oh yeah, I, I do remember this. Um, actually, an oncologist in Houston who works with very, very sick people who kind of come to her at the end of the line 
when other treatments have not worked. And um, she was talking with me about uh, just it seems the insatiable um, desire of the human body to repair that she's just uh, mm. sort of and I did I think I had said something to her like how do you do your work and not become deeply depressed you know I just couldn't she really um, you know a lot of the people she works with do die and um, but she said there just there's these just amazing things that happen in the midst of her work, and it just gives her so much hope. And I, I thought that's really interesting that wonder and hope, and how we think about the connection of those together, um, is kind of virtues and what counts as hope. <laughs> you know, um, it's got certain sort of reflections. Yeah. That's great. Others. Oh, oh, you guys go right for the juggernaut of deep, don't you? That's sort of it's great. Yeah. So when you were talking about religion as a barrier and a bridge, mm -hmm. you talked about um, you know not accepting treatment like Jehovah's Witness notes, transfusions, mm -hmm. but then also as a bridge with chaplains. But the way you phrased that was like, you know, when nothing else works, we call the chaplain. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that idea of religion as a last resort in medicine and how we might move that up the chain? Oh, it's a so little hard. Bit? Yeah, I do think. Um, this came out in our interviews with professors of medicine, and also it's come out, of course, with scientists, that um, you know, professors of medicine do often buy into the supposed conflict between religion and science and the kind of, um, really, the independence perspective, right? The Stephen Jay Gould non-overlapping, the late paleontologist wrote this quite famous short piece about non-overlapping magisterium. And yet, for natural scientists, um, I gave some examples of this yesterday. They can't uh, escape the fact that uh, religious people enter science. Like they, these are persons who are part of faith communities who come into science um, as their students, and they have to deal with this. And um, even for the most secular of scientists, they're going to know religious people who are actually in the science community itself. And so when you get to the level, I love this focus on the body, and I like to think about embodiment and what that means. When you get to the level of thinking about things and how they're actually lived, it's impossible to completely keep these realms separate. Um, and if you do try to force it in a way that's artificial, it feels artificial to people and I think can be actually quite dangerous. And so you might kind of think about the, a shift in paradigm and what that means and the way in which religion and religious practitioners might be helpful at, and you all could probably know much more about this than me, so I'd love to hear what you think, could be helpful at different in different kinds of spaces and places, right? So it could be partners in different kinds of ways than just like, I'm done here, so now I'd like to hand this over to you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah. working as a chaplain, I've often walked into spaces in hospitals, and people are like, who's dying? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's not really the end-all, be-all of what a chaplain can do. I have a, fu not a funny story, but a kind of, well, I'll take your question first and then I'll yeah. tell it if it seems appropriate. Uh, yeah. it's, it's related. I mean, I, I, was, I was struck by something similar. So if, if there's this opposition between science and religion. Part of what's gotten constructed with that is this idea that knowledge and reason belong to science land. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that faith is something that is irrational and not having to do with the type of knowledge. And so, so if, if, if there's this idea that faith begins where knowledge ends, then you call in the chaplain when your scientific knowledge is ended. It's funny because I think in some corners of med, I do think that's true. Uh, I think others have researched this. But 
Don't you think in some medical institutions this is starting to change a bit? That there's some, uh, maybe some, maybe yours all are spearheading it here, perhaps. Um, but I've been in, um, you know, a high level. I'm I'm very fortunate in American society because I have all this education. I have a great health insurance, so I've been to some premier medical institutions to have my work done. And seven surgery. I can't remember anymore. One, two. I'm counting my joints that are new. <laughs> in my mind, I've had at least six surgeries, maybe seven. Um, but that I have been asked more recently in like intake, like who is my community, which I think is an interesting question. Like you're going home with this joint replacement, like who's going to care for you? Do you have a church? Like, and maybe this is more okay to ask because I'm in Texas where like <laughs> this is kind of socially accepted. Um, but I thought that was interesting to be asked about your community because of the knowledge that, you know, you're going to need help and so you're going to need a group of people to care for you. And where is that going to come from for you? I think that's kind of interesting. So to think about that, too, as not just knowledge, ideas, and belief systems, but also as communities that might support health. And there's a lot of research on this, right, about, you know, smoking cessation programs happening through churches. And, you know, just sort of there's some increasing interesting public health research here. But think about Warren and then here and then yeah. far. So thank you. Yeah. I, Think about to the concept of boundary pioneers. There's, there's a way in which that makes me nervous in a particular set of um, religious scientists, of which Francis Collins is maybe the best known, as you mentioned. But thinking about uh, scientists that are often called specifically to speak as scientists to this religion science um, interchange and offer themselves as public voices in this area. And think about scientists that are called uh, into Veritas forums, for example, to other institutions. And, and I wonder if, I'd love your soci sociologist's view of how that functions, because my perception is that, in part, they're valued, maybe even by the respondent you mentioned, because they help to uh, narrate science as safe for religion, maybe specifically Christianity. Safe for the whole family. And, and also yeah. narrate Christianity as safe for science. So oh, that's good. That's so nothing a good really comment. has to change. And as a, as, so as a Christian, I, that concerns me because I think there are some ways in which maybe, um, you know, Christianity is not safe for all forms of science and science is not safe for all. And, and, and so I worry that there's a kind of um, comfortable translation that happens that might actually be yeah, morally that's good. negative. That's, that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. Um, something I've been thinking about lately, again, something that was brought up by a scientist respondent, is um, what are the conditions under which um, conflict could be good and could be like more of a, thinking about a biblical um, idea of iron sharpening iron, um, where you could, and you helped me just think about it in that moment, Warren, in a, a slightly different kind of way than I've been thinking about it, but where science could help, or the science as an institution or groups of scientists could help hold faith accountable in certain ways, um, or um, help faith deepen, you know, through the conflict, <laughs> through particular kinds of conflict. Maybe conflict is not the right word here. But what are ways in which, and actually Francis Collins himself said this to me once in a way that I thought was really helpful, are there ways in which we could have um, religious organizations and religious people reflecting on science in a way that might even bring conflict sometimes but could be useful to science and help it to deepen in a more morally reflective way and I, I don't know you don't want to make too much of these these kinds of things but I I wonder if there's something there that there's a kind of alternative to 
like this um, one big voice who kind of says how everything's reconciled. You know, I, I don't know. I just want to think about what you said. You, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Uh, back to the chaplaincy talk real quick. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking with uh, those other questions and um, your story of your daughter touched me. I have two daughters. And uh, I just think about how pastoral she was. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how we can respect both offices of medicine and religion, but also offer such pastoral counseling to those who maybe need it, like a pre-surgical counseling mm, that's good. option that's for good. religion. Um, how do we include that without them offsetting or you know, being mm -hmm. in tension with one another? Yeah, and how would we offer the, the chaplaincy and partnership with um, other pieces of the medical profession, right? It, mm. at, at various, we think about the, the sort of life course of entrance into medical institutions and out of them, and how might we offer chaplain resources at every point. That's a really great, great um, thing to think about. I just think that's a sort of call, right? Yeah. How do we kind of reflect on that at every point? Um, I had a funny, uh, not a funny, a really hard, <laughs> Gosh, I'm telling you all my really deep stories here. <laughs> um, but uh, I just uh, experienced um, the death of my grandmother who raised me. And um, not an untimely death, not a particularly difficult death. In some ways, a good death. It was a short illness. Um, if such things can be said, you know, I think it was a good death. But um, it was hard, right, as she raised me. So she's like, it was really like losing a parent. It's a really significant death for me. And I was with her when she died, which was also an uh, experience, you know, that I'm sure many of you have had, but the everyday person doesn't have, you know, as frequently. And, but it was interesting, sort of the role the chaplain played there, because I thought the hospital where we were actually really integrated the chaplaincy into that whole experience well. Like both it and now this was an end of life situation, but it was a really thorough integration, and I was really, really impressed. Mm -hmm. So had the chaplain present at all the conversations about like the medical decisions were being made, mm -hmm. had the chaplain present with her, and then it was kind of funny. The one thing that happened is I was left with um, with her body uh, for a little bit after, and that's kind of a hard experience. And I called the nurse in and I said, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure she's um, has died at this point. And the nurse checked her and she indeed had passed away. And I said, I'd like to call the chaplain back in. And she said to me, she said, well, she, she is gone at this point. So I don't think, you know, he's going to be helpful to her. And, and I said, no, for me, I would like to see him again. <laughs> and I was like, because I had really... <laughs> I had really grown fond of him, right? <laughs> and he was really helpful, and I was like, I'm not really, it's this funny kind of situation you have where there's not really a protocol here. I was, I just wanted to ask someone, I'm a very much a sociologist, so I'm like, what's typical in this situation? Do I stay here? Like, uh, do, do I visit, do I remain here? Is it perceived as disrespectful? So I called him back in and I said, what's typical for people to do in this situation? I said, if you could give me a range. My husband thought this was, you can't, I'm sorry to laugh at this really deep experience. It was, I couldn't laugh or I'll just cry. But um, 
my husband said, you're so true to yourself. You did like a little mini sociological study right there. He's like, you wanted to kind of crowdsource it. You're like, what are the range of things that people do here? <laughs> and you kind of, I wanted to pick from, but he was so gracious and like, it was a really helpful, really a helpful experience if that makes sense. And he ended up, um, their office ended up doing her funeral and kind of became very special to the family. And, uh, uh, he really navigated that situation well. Yeah. It's funny to hear you say that just as an aside story. Um, so uh, my wife had uh, our daughter a little over two months ago. And that night uh, well, after our family had... Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, our family had all left. And um, and I was like, I want to page the chaplain. <laughs> She's like, why? why? I was like, well, I want to ask, see if they'll pray with me. And I want to, you know ask them some questions. <laughs> and, uh, they weren't sociological, more like theological. Uh, but it, anyways, uh, that poor chaplain, she was lovely and she came in and you know, prayed with us and it seemed to make her night because not many people paid to chaplain from, uh, with happy birth stories. Um, yeah, that's and, right. uh, and so, so anyways, it was, uh, it was a, like the nurse and the kind of post, I mean, the, the, and the kind of baby care area was like, a chaplain, hmm, and you know she has to, like pull up her like how do I page a chaplain, you know like like uh, so it was a really fun experience. For, really my wife was a little like you know a little like I just gave birth. Do you really need to talk to a chaplain right now? Like uh, and quiz them about their theology, but I, had a, I enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think for the next question, there might be others as well. Just was a, maybe it's a, a really a comment, and then invite Elaine your reflections on it. Heather, you offered one way of construing this is that religion begins or faith begins where knowledge ends. Oh, I disagree with that. Oh, I know, I, I know, I knew you did. That was clear. <laughs> and I share that disagreement, but I, I, I think relative to physicians, another way that this comes up is religion begins or spirituality begins where control ends. Mm, that's, that's one So if you take the, if you take a look at palliative care, if you look at psychiatry, if you look at particularly the pediatrics mm -hmm. dealing with children with autism, the truth is we have we have very little control. The orthopedist is has a high degree of certainty that he can accomplish what he mm -hmm. sets out to do with your hip. Warren has much less confidence that he can set up that's to right. accomplish what he's setting out to do with someone struggling with depression, and, and that's certainly in my area. It's certainly true. So, but it does press that. Related to this is it presses the question picking up on Warren's comment, of what, you mentioned that, that scientists have this strong sense of identity, that, sci that being a scientist permeates, it's sort of a social identity that you take It does, on. yeah, it's a master identity. Being a Christian is arguably, um, a, a, as a Christian, um, the identity, the, mm -hmm. the constitutive mm -hmm. identity mm -hmm. that must... Um, which of course is a given identity, it's one we're invited into and receive, but that must be the determinative identity insofar as the social identity of a scientist, how in, in some places comes to conflict. And I'm just curious where you pick up that people are struggling with that. Mm, that's a tension. really good, good question. Um, I've argued in some of my articles, I have an article in... Um, I think it's in a journal called Social Forces, where uh, my co-authors and I talk about this sort of uh, a master status identity, which is a, a concept we use in sociology. Sometimes identities are 
um, in conflict, right? There's a lot of work, uh, there's a lot of research about work-family tensions and things in terms of how that plays out. Um, and sometimes ident those identities feel in conflict for people. Sometimes identities are so powerful they seem to orient um, all the other kinds of identities, right? And then we call that identity a kind of master status, like people draw on it in a variety of different ways in a variety of different institutions. And for many people, the scientist identity does seem like the master identity. And it is really interesting to think through under what conditions people are able to, um, gosh, in Christian terms, we would think about you know, bringing that identity under the lordship of Christ, right? We sort of think about like these, this very specific Christian language for thinking about that or um, having, um, and I think subservient is not the right word, but um, bringing um, our really powerful identities other, under this other powerful identity that's even more expansive. And sort of how would, what would be the conditions under which that could be made possible, right? And I, I, just, I'm, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But that's something I think to, to muse on. And I, I think that what you mentioned about control is really wise and maybe a way to think about orientations of certain subfields. A another thing that happened with my orthopedic surgeon, who I've really grown to deeply appreciate, as you can tell, and you know I have no pain in my hips, which is amazing. That's an amazing gift. Um, but uh, <laughs> I also... I have a big case of white coat syndrome. I also asked him, of course, in my in this whole process, I was like, "Oh, like, has anyone ever died? You know, on the <laughs> I'm sorry, you'd love to have me as a patient." <laughs> so he says, "He says, nope, never lost anyone in orthopedic surgery." <laughs> he says, "Like, I've never lost anyone," and I thought, "Wow, okay, I'm totally choosing you." And you know, of course, the it, it's it, you know, the um, but that's kind of, but that control thing is really it is a much more. Um, there is the illusion of certainty there it, that is different than in some other subfields. And sort of thinking about that is then maybe conditioning in part or being the framework for then how religion and spirituality could be lived out in those different kinds of subfields is really interesting. That's a great question. Um, before maybe somebody wants to ask the last question, I have a, a, a bit of a one from left field. So uh, this work that you've done in gender and science ethics, mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting. So uh, I'll try to summarize, and then you feel free to correct. Thank you for reading yeah. my work. Gosh, yeah. okay. Um, well, yeah, no, well, yes, I, I enjoyed that article a lot. I can't say I've read all of your work. Um, the, uh, um, the, the, so, so you look at how on both the individual and a kind of occupational structural level, there are these differences in perception of kind of the ethics of like masculine and feminine ethics in science. And a kind of masculine ethic is one of kind of competitive drive to like achieve or something like that. And then a kind of feminine ethic is a kind of cautious, careful faithfulness to the data. And so among, and then there's some people that don't see gender differences. Um, and then, then there's a, uh, and so part of the report from the folks you interviewed is that like women may be more ethical scientists. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really interesting. Uh, and I wonder if that also might translate to medicine as well. Uh, mm. um, uh, are there gender differences in terms of the moral contours of the practice of medicine as well? Yeah, that's really an interesting question. Someone should study that. I mean, that's a great... I, I have not studied that in particular, but there are some other... Um, there are certainly studies that look at the differences between 
um, men and women who are physicians in terms of how much testing they order and just and how they interact with their patients and other kinds of contours of medical practice. So that's mm -hmm. that research is out there. Um, in my particular <laughs> research, looking at um, men and women in physics um, and biology, that uh, we then interviewed them about the extent to which they thought men and women in science were ethically different and how they perceived that. And um, both men and women thought women were more ethical scientists and, and more um, relational scientists. And both men and women thought it came with a, a penalty or cost to the scientific career, that it was harder for women to get ahead because wow. of this. They thought they were too ethical, potentially. And that was kind of interesting, that they were just too cautious, you know, too much wanting to repeat experiments, wanting to, you sort of think about things that might come up in science, um, caring too much about um, other people getting credit for their ideas, um, you know, being critically respectful of that, and these kinds of things, which, you know, I think many of us would look at and think, well, that's just good practice. That's good scientific practice that, but these kinds of things have become somewhat gendered, um, perhaps unfortunately so. And so that's just something to think about. I don't know how that would play in medicine in the same way. I just don't know enough to say, but I can imagine yeah. that it might. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great. Wilson, you have the last question. That. Yeah. Well, it's not a question. I think there there has been research, I believe, specifically on surgeons. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and female surgeons have better outcomes. Hmm. So that perhaps being more cautious or careful, if that's indeed the case, right? I, I don't know if yeah. it is. Yeah. Anyone else? They're, they're also yeah. replicated that in um, like outpatient settings. For the most, those are like the larger studies where they look at outcomes in sort of like primary care settings. Mm. And patients of physicians who are women do have overall like better outcomes than, mm. than but also that's like more Heather, you can have the yeah. last question. I wonder if part of the push develop these virtues of being very careful about data comes from being pretty sure we won't be believed otherwise. Yeah, I think that's right. So that's what women, so scientists do say that, right? That they're, um, and that and you think about a field like physics where women are especially underrepresented, right? Or maybe uh, you might think of specialties of medicine where women are especially underrepresented and how um, you do feel, and this is borne out in my research, you do feel like you're kind of champion for your gender mm -hmm. um, in a way that puts uh, enormous undue pressure, right? Um, and that you have to be extra careful, right? Um, and so that's, that's certainly borne out in the data. Mm. Thank you. This, this was really terrific. This is such terrific. a delight. Th please yeah. join me in thanking. Yeah.